Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. News Talk 1110 and 99.3 WBT. Brett Jensen here with you on this Friday edition of Breaking with Brett Jensen. 704-570-1110. As always, that's the telephone number. And guys, follow me on X, otherwise known as Twitter, at Brett underscore Jensen for all the latest and breaking news in and around the Charlotte area. Okay, so we got a lot we're going to get into tonight. We've got the CAD situation in the O-line or the red line. Is it going to happen anytime soon? How about is it going to happen at all, which is the line that would go from Charlotte all the way up to Mooresville? Is that going to happen? We're also going to talk about the situation going on in Israel right now. And earlier in the week, me, Bo, and Beth, or I should say Bo, Beth, and I, spoke to Chris Swecker, a big-time dude with the FBI, about safety here locally and what to expect with that. And it's also Panthers Friday. I first want to start off with Tony Messia. Now, Tony Messia is the founder and the executive editor of Charlotte Ledger. He wrote maybe the most comprehensive piece about the whole O-line thing and the red line and the Charlotte Transit and Cats. And especially after it came out that, hey, Norfolk Southern Railroad might actually, for once, be considering allowing the city of Charlotte to use its rail lines that are already put in place. So I wanted to talk to Tony Messia about this because, again, he wrote the most extensive piece and he's been following this in great, great detail. And I don't think anyone understands it better than Tony. So, Tony, first of all, I really do appreciate you joining me tonight and updating our listeners. But number two... So, Tony, what happened? Why all of a sudden the about face from Norfolk Southern Railroad, who's been saying for a long, long time, you will never be able to use our railroad tracks, then all of a sudden they're going, hey, you know what, maybe it's something uh, we might consider. What happened? That's a great question, Brett. You know, we don't really know. We don't have a lot of insight into the thinking of Norfolk Southern and sort of why they're changing their position on this. You know, railroads traditionally are kind of hard to get information out of. Um, They kind of don't have to answer to anybody for the most part. They don't typically, you know, they're they're sort of often described as kind of slow moving, slow to respond. Um, So it's it's really hard to know kind of what the thinking is here. But yes, I mean, as you mentioned, for 20 years, this is something the city of Charlotte and the northern towns have really wanted is, uh, you know, the ability to run passenger rail, commuter rail on what they call the red line, which Norfolk Southern calls the O line, but it's basically a 25 mile track between uptown Charlotte and Mooresville. So they've wanted to do that for 20 years, and Norfolk Southern has always said, no, we need it for freight. And for whatever reason, uh, in July, they sent a letter to the city and said, well, we might be actually willing to consider uh, leasing the track or selling it to you. I'm talking with Tony Messia, the founder and the executive editor of the Charlotte Ledger. So, Tony, do we have any idea how much the cost might be for Charlotte to actually rent these railroad tracks? Yeah, again, hard to know, and the city's being very protective of it, as they are with a lot of economic development sorts of things, as far as what the negotiations are. So, you know, they don't like to negotiate in public and sort of have that all known blow by blow. I, it's still a little bit early. I haven't done enough reporting on this yet to know exactly. I don't really know how do you value, uh, you know, a, a train track. Um, you know, it's sort of it doesn't have a whole lot of uses, really, you know, not out there on the open market, like selling a house or something. But it's hard to know what exactly that uh, the price of acquiring that would be. I mean, it, it's sort of, from my understanding, uh, not it's not used a lot right now by Norfolk Southern. We had some readers that actually sent us 
picture, I think it's in Cornelius, there's actually a big break in the tracks where there's just a hill of dirt. So it's not like it really runs all the way to Mooresville right now as it is. You know, I think there are fewer and fewer industrial plants that um, that are serviced by freight along this line. So it, it sounds like it's probably becoming less valuable to Norfolk Southern, um, but it's un- unclear exactly how much, you know, the city might have to pay to, to acquire that. Talking with Tony Messia, the executive editor of the Charlotte Ledger. So, Tony, out of all these studies that have been done over the last several years, including most recently, how many people do they actually expect to use the red line, which goes from Mooresville all the way down? Because there's over 100,000 people that live between Huntersville and Mooresville. That's another great question. I mean, it's it's hard to know. And, and things have actually changed a lot, Brett, as you know. I mean, a, a lot of people that used to have to commute into uptown Charlotte don't have to do that anymore. They're They're working from home. Um, you know, they're, they're not in, they're not going into the office. There are numbers you can kind of see, it's maybe a little bit apples to oranges, but you can see the number of people on the, uh, on the bus rapid transit between Huntersville and Uptown. Those numbers, um, you know, have, have declined a, a lot by, you know, 70% since COVID. I think it's about, uh, I think it's about 5,000 uh, a month, something like that, um, you know, that are, that are taking that, um, that bus line. Now, People prefer to ride the train generally than to take a bus. But, the, you know, the other side of it is, you know, if this line goes into service, the city has estimated that the trip from Mooresville to Uptown is going to take 56 minutes, which is longer than, than the, a rapid bus would take, longer than it would take to drive. You know, so I think it is kind of an open question how many people are actually going to be taking a train or could be taking a train from these northern towns uh, into Uptown. Talking with Tony Messia, the founder and executive editor of the Charlotte Ledger. So, Tony, would it even be worth it in the long run if you're coming from Mooresville or wherever? Because if it's going to take you about an hour to get there via train, you can get there a lot, lot faster, especially if you're using the toll lanes. And I know so many people hate that. But in terms of time and money, are you would you really be saving any time or money by using the rail system? Well, and the other question is how frequently would they run these trains? As you know, with some of the other, um, you know, CATS services with the, you know, the light rail, with the streetcar, the buses, that, you know, there are a lot of complaints that they don't really run them often enough to be um, really usable to people. You know, you, you don't want to just sort of miss it and then the next one's not coming for 45 minutes. That's kind of a big pain. So you got to make sure they're on time. You got to make sure the frequencies are, are enough that people would use it. Um, so I guess the argument would be, the other side would be, well, this region is growing a lot. And yes, we, we know what the numbers might be today, but in 20 years, are the numbers going to be, you know, a lot more? I mean, that's sort of always, the, you know, what they, what they look at is that we're not building for today, we're building for tomorrow, right? Tony Messia from the Charlotte Ledger with us tonight. So, Tony, let's say hypothetically it all happens and you get the northern line and then you get that line coming in from Matthews going out towards the airport in Belmont. If that happens, even if it's in the next 15 years or so, is everything done with? Yeah, just to be clear, there's still a lot that has to happen. Even if they are able to negotiate something with Norfolk Southern to use this line, they still don't really have funding, you know, for any of that, Um, you know, for the silver line, you know, from uh, Matthews to the airport for the for the red line which they estimated would cost i think around 700 million dollars that was a, a couple of years ago i mean the, the silver line i think is estimated more like 8 billion you know they want to extend the blue line down to Pineville and valentine they want to improve bus service there's a whole you know there's a whole list of things that, that they want to do but they can't really do any of that until a few things happen one of those they believe is getting this red line issue cleared up but there's some other significant ones too like getting 
the General Assembly to agree to put a referendum on the ballot. That's, I think, going to be kind of a heavy lift. As you know, you know, Republican leaders of the General Assembly have said they would prefer a strategy that is focused on road building, you know, not so much, you know, trains, for example. Um, and then the voters actually have to approve it. And our voters going to approve uh, increasing the taxes on themselves in order to give more money to CAP. Um, so I think, you know, and then there's a question, okay, they also depend on money from the federal government, some grants from the Federal Transit Administration. And there are some questions there, too. So all these things kind of have to break exactly the right way. Um, and I don't know that, you know, to answer your question, I don't know that we're ever, I don't know that they're ever going to get a, get to a point where they're like, all right, we've got all the money um, that we need. We've, we've got plans that we've, and we've built out all that we need to. It's always sort of, well, where, what are we going to do in 10 years? What are we going to do in 20 years? And they're always sort of kind of looking ahead to sort of what the next next thing is. So um, maybe they start, oh, and the other one is extending the streetcar line. It's another one, the gold line. That's sort of on the uh, part of this, too. So there's a, you know, a number of projects that they would like to have money to do um, do things with. You know, the mayor has said repeatedly that she believes Charlotte uh, has a plan but no money. So that's, you know, do you, do you really have a plan if you don't have any money for the plan? Sort of a, is kind of a fundamental question, I, I guess. But um, it's it's just sort of interesting to see, you know, they're going to need some money in order to get this stuff done, and they don't have that at the moment. Tony Messia, founder and executive editor of the Charlotte Ledger. I really do appreciate you enlightening me and the audience tonight. So even if everything were to come together, it sounds like from everything that Tony just said, it could be 10 years at the absolute earliest before all this comes together. And they don't even have the funding right now. So, hey, pie in the sky, wishful thinking. We'll see what happens. But at this point, I don't think anyone should be holding their breath. All right, so we got a lot scheduled for the rest of the night. I'm Brett Jensen, and you're listening to Breaking with Brett Jensen. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. News Talk 1110 and 99.3 WBT. Brett Jensen here with you on Breaking with Brett Jensen going up until 8 o'clock tonight. So one week ago today, I was the moderator of the mayoral debate and the town commissioner's debate. Three of the challengers decided not to show up. The three incumbents did, two town commissioners and the mayor. There's been a lot of contention going back and forth, and I can't tell you how many emails I've received about the debate last week. But what I wanted to do was just play a little bit of it from last week. And look, it is highly contested and a lot of people are upset about a lot of different things on each side of it. So here are some of the highlights. Now it should be noted in advance, I shortened some of the answers just to take out some of the things when people would start going down rabbit holes to stay to the crux of the original question asked. So here's just a little piece of the debate last week on whether or not Waxhaw is already too big. So, uh, Commissioner Simpson, let me start with you. Is Waxhaw too big? Is Waxhaw too big? Mm -hmm. The way it is right now. I think us as a municipality and people hear that they have a Waxhaw address, but Waxhaw proper doesn't go out in, in, in that whole area. So Waxhaw proper is a smaller area. And I think with regards if it's too big or not, it comes down to property owner rights. And those property owner rights are guaranteed by the Constitution, by the 5th and the 14th Amendment. And those say that as a property owner or landowner, you have a right to buy, sell, develop, or improve your property 
provided it meets the zoning and codes of the municipality or the town that you live in. So regardless of whether I think it's too big or too small, we really have to look at the property owner rights within our municipality boundaries of the town because landowners and property owners have a right to build and develop. So Commissioner Moray, on that, the prices aren't the same in 2015 as they are now. So in order to keep offsetting the cost of whatever it is that you're wanting to build, whether it's a community center, an athletic center, whatever the case may be, then how do you propose to pay for it? Well, Waxhaw has put itself in a really uh, good financial uh, position. And so we've, as I said, we've taken care of a lot of uh, things. But I, I believe that it's important to now uh, consider the relationships that we've built uh, and look for other sources to help fund these things. We've uh, brought on a lobbyist that helps us with grants. Uh, we're getting private investments that come in. Uh, and a lot of these projects that you see out in town are now starting to help us with roadway improvements, tree save, uh, the tax base alone helps us fund our police department, which was our, our largest budget item. And so I, I think that in the past, they never had those conversations. Uh, you never built that bridge to uh, NCDOT or the bridge to CSX. And because of that, we've missed out on a lot of opportunities to help get things accomplished. Uh, private investment is now starting to become a big thing. Uh, we've had opportunities that came to us, for example, the athletic barn. Uh, some folks are talking about, well, that's $2 million. Uh, that's correct, but you couldn't find a property or a building of that worth in that setup uh, for anywhere near that price. People, you know, talk about, well, this, the town hall is uh, way out in the middle of nowhere. And he said, well, tell me where you'd want it. And people would say, well, it's got to be closer to the center of town. And I said, well, how much do you think the property values are down towards the center of town? And then when you tell them, it's like, well, it's not an ideal location, but as we build these bridges, uh, we can look towards the future and perhaps have someone else build us a town hall, saving you know, the taxpayers money. And the fact that that piece of property is ours and we're not paying rent, okay, that's equity, which means in the future, if something else comes along, okay, even though that building is going to be there for years, that's what, the way it was designed. It wasn't designed for today or 10 years ago. It was designed for the future so that our kids wouldn't have to worry about those things, they can pay attention to, you know, whatever else. We were, I was just speaking with a gentleman about um, our seniors, and we've had studies, uh, presentations given to us that uh, talk about as we all live longer, uh, as we become empty nesters or single parent homes, um, where will we live, okay? And so the, a lot of these dynamics are gonna change, uh, and I hope that in the future we take these things in consideration and look for outside sources to uh, help us accomplish these goals. Mayor, the term being thrown a lot around is controlled growth. What does that mean to you, and what are your thoughts about that? Well, I was going to comment a little bit when we you talked about, uh, you know, is Waxhaw too big? And I'm sure you're going to get a different answer from anybody that you ask in the town at any given time. Um, as I would tease, you know, some of the people that have been here for a very, very long time, uh, probably think the same as some of the people who just arrived is that, gee, it used to be this and now it's something else. So when we talk about growth in this area, it's going to come. It's already here. It's already been here. One of the challenges that was here before is now we have a pretty successful team 
and we've revised as many of these codes and ordinances that we've now lived with that have been uh, sometimes in the works and in play for more than two decades before we got here. So now we're making a constant adjustment on how to manage that growth as it comes along. As new communities come to us, we now get to have the leverage on them to ask for the roadway, the infrastructure systems, all the improvements, because nothing, and I'll say this you know, quite openly, nothing happens without development. If you want to see the entire debate slash forum, go to the Waxhaw Business Association's Facebook page. They have the entire thing uploaded, unedited, and you can see it in its entirety. And you can hear all the questions that I asked. But right now, it's time to head on over to the WBT Newsroom with Anna Erickson. News Talk 1110 and 99.3 WBT. Brett Jensen here with you on this Friday edition of Breaking with Brett Jensen. 704-570-1110. And guys, make sure you follow me on Twitter slash X, X slash Twitter, at Brett underscore Jensen for all the latest and breaking news in and around the Charlotte area. So obviously the big news the last week or so has been everything coming out of Israel and Hamas and Hezbollah and Iran and everything else. Chris Wecker lives here in Charlotte and he used to be a big, big deal with the FBI. He's been on many national programs to talk about national security and whatnot. And he's been on WBT many, many times as well, usually on with Bo Thompson. Well, Chris spoke to me, Bo and Beth earlier this week on Tuesday about the situation concerning Israel and what does it mean here at home. And so I thought this was such a good interview that I wanted to play it in its entirety from Tuesday morning because it is something that you need to hear about. And if you didn't hear it, definitely listen to it. And if you already heard it because you joined us Tuesday morning, well, it doesn't hurt to hear it again because maybe you missed something the first time. So here's the interview with former FBI bigwig Chris Swecker. And we welcome to the WBT hotline. Uh, he served 24 years uh, in the FBI as special agent, retired from the Bureau as assistant director with responsibility over all FBI criminal investigations. Uh, it is our, our friend Chris Swecker who joins us periodically when uh, things are going on in the world where we can uh, pick his brain about how it is all playing out. Chris, uh, welcome back to the show. Good morning. Thank you so much. Um, I want to. I, I wanted to have you on uh, specifically to talk about um, what what hasn't happened yet. And thankfully, uh, you know, Friday was this uh, this day of jihad that was declared by uh, former Hamas officials, uh, and and we know what's going on. President Biden is on his way to uh, uh, to Israel uh, in the midst of this conflict. But Friday was a day when I think a lot of us were on edge uh, across the country, across the world, and you wondered if uh, here in the United States. Maybe there would be copycats or maybe there would be, uh, uh, you know, domestic issues uh, connecting to that uh, declaration. And uh, we didn't see anything uh, uh, materialize in the form of what we saw in the Middle East. Now, there uh, have been some threats and there have been some isolated examples, which I'll get to in a moment. But the general sense of uh, being on alert across this country and across the world, I wanted to get your take on how how uh, maybe some things we don't know that are going on behind the scenes. Yeah, I think this is probably the greatest threat to our homeland since the pre-9-11 run-up, some of which the intelligence agencies missed or didn't connect up. But I, I'll say this. The, the attack by Hamas in Israel is not something you look at in isolation. They want a broader conflict. And certainly the call has gone out to the terrorists, you know, to the terrorist cells across the globe. Um, green light, Go. 
And so that, that's why I think there's an elevated, I mean, incredibly elevated threat right now. We have Hezbollah cells burrowed into our country, across the country. I know that we, we had one of the most significant prosecutions here in Charlotte when I was head of the office. And, you know, there are Hamas cells, there are Al Qaeda cells, there are lone actors who just need to get the, you know, get that call to action. So I hope our intelligence agencies are are in you know hyper in a hypersensitive posture because we have taken our eye off the ball a little bit. You know, I think that international terrorism has always been the greatest threat to this country in terms of terrorism and all this focus on domestic terrorists, so called you know, right wing terrorists in the in this country is is a little bit overblown in the sense that international terrorists are here for the long haul. They will they will inflict greater damage in any domestic group. So we know that there was uh, heightened security in cities all across the U.S., all around the world on Friday. As you were just saying, you hope that um, our, our, our intelligence agencies are on heightened alert right now. We do know that here in Charlotte, a North Carolina man was arrested by the FBI yesterday after making a threat to the Jewish, Fe- Jewish Federation of Greater Charlotte. Um, are, are organizations staying on heightened alert? And will that be something that we see here from here on out, given what's happened um, in Israel with Hamas and given the fact that uh, former Hamas leaders and, you know, people who are ingrained with Hezbollah live here in the United States? Yes, I think it's all hands on deck. You know, not, I mean, the FBI is is the the lead counterterrorism agency domestically, but you also have other agencies, police departments, uh, state agencies that are in that same heightened alert. And, you know, the test here is to to be preemptive, not wait for something to happen, as we were after 9-11, when people were, were being arrested for, you know, as the material witnesses for minor violations, if you suspected that they were plotting some sort of terrorist act. I mean, we used every tool in the toolbox, and I hope that's the posture that the agencies are in right now. They need to share information. They need to to connect those dots, if you will. They need to watch out for the lone actors, but also the organized cells. Our southern border has opened us up and, and basically nullified all of the security precautions that we've taken after 9-11. And that's, that's probably our greatest vulnerability right now, is people can just walk across. Chris, this is uh, Brett Jensen. And let's, let's go to the micro um, for a minute on this, as opposed to the macro. In terms of localness, um, there was like, you know, moms groups and stuff up in Huntersville and other areas that are concerned whether or not they should send their kids to school, private school, public school, whatever. When we get to that type of concern, is it is it justified or what would you say to the people that actually live here? I would say live your normal lives, but with a little extra vigilance. And, you know, if you see something, you say something. Some Somebody, you know, that appears to have no purpose and is wandering around. It looks like they're paying too much attention to a building or, or a, you know, a group of people at some event. I mean, it, you can't really define it. It's just if you see something, you say something. But you, you have to live your normal life and not give in to these terrorist threats. But there is a you bring up a good point. I mean, we want to we want to leverage the entire public here. Law enforcement always wants to do that. And they can participate by just being a little bit more careful and observant. Okay, so Brett went micro. I'm going to go macro as much as you can from a United States perspective. President Biden has made the decision to go to Israel uh, on Wednesday. Do you think that's a good idea? I don't think so. 
I think it's a little bit of grandstanding. I, I you know, I think that whenever a, a world leader shows up in a, in a war zone like that, it, dis, it, it deflects resources, it diverts resources. It ought to be on, you know, doing other things than uh, doing this dog and pony show. Whenever a, a, you know, some leader shows up, now it's a, it's a great symbolic act, but he can do that by just, you know. By doing what George Bush, Ronald Reagan, you know the the great well, the the presidents that had you know had the ability to rally the people, if you will, and that's what we really need our president to do right now. Chris Swecker, we appreciate your time as always, and we'll stay in touch as this is obviously uh, not ending anytime soon, and uh, most likely will uh, intensify. But thanks for your time. Thank you. Have a good day. So I'm not joking. There was this mom's group up in the Huntersville area that was all concerned that somehow, some way, that Hamas and Hezbollah and ISIS were actually going to try and target a school up in Huntersville, even though it wasn't even a Jewish school. But, you know, I, I don't think that ISIS is sitting there over in Lebanon going, OK, how can we get this school in Huntersville, North Carolina? Now, could there be something, you know, random or a lone attacker like he talked about, Chris Swecker talked about? Absolutely. See something, say something. It wouldn't be out of the realm of possibility. Exceptionally unlikely, but not out of the realm of possibility. So like he said, see something, say something, be on your toes, but don't stop living your life. Don't think that everyone is out to get you. Just don't. I've never lived that way. And I hate it for those who actually do. I feel bad for you, for people who think, yes, you know what, we are the targets. I mean, I, I just don't think you are. Not in Huntersville, North Carolina, or Cornelius, or even in Charlotte. So when we come back, it's Panthers Friday. Some really big news happened with the Carolina Panthers this week. The head coach, Frank Reich, gave up the play calling duty and has now given it to offensive coordinator Thomas Brown. We're going to hear from Thomas Brown when we return. I'm Brett Jensen, and you're listening to Breaking with Brett Jensen. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. News Talk 1110 and 99.3 WBT. Brett Jensen here with you for a few more minutes on Breaking with Brett Jensen before we send you off into the weekend. So the Carolina Panthers made big national headline news this week when the head coach, Frank Reich, said... You know what? I'm giving up the play calling duty. Maybe the offense will be a little bit better. I can concentrate on other things and not have to divide all my time. And I'm giving it up to Thomas Brown. Thomas Brown is the offensive coordinator. He spoke with the media this week about the new role change. Hey, you're actually going to be play calling this week and going forward throughout the rest of the year. What does it mean and how? what kind of changes can we expect? So here's Thomas Brown talking to the media about his new role as the play caller for the Carolina Panthers. You know, off to a, a great start with a bye week, just trying to get some things cleaned up, regroup, get some guys fresh and healthy, get ready to roll and, and go attack the rest of the season. Um, obviously, super appreciative of Frank uh, for giving me this opportunity, right? So not just talking about the play calling opportunity, but just from the very beginning. Because it's normal in this profession to, you know, stick to who you know, guys you've worked with before, and we had no prior background together. So from the very beginning, he's always been uh, open and honest about his approach, uh, most times these jobs are filled before the interview process even starts. Uh, so give me a chance to go through that, um, kind of express my my ideas about the offense, what I'm going to bring to the table. And obviously, 
continue to grow and learn from him has been a, a great deal for me. So definitely appreciate him this opportunity and ready to rock and roll. Things look different. What do you want to do to put your stamp on it right away? Yeah, I want to continue to build upon what we built so far. Just being able to clean up some of those mistakes we've made before in the past. We've obviously uh, came out last game with the first opportunity to have no turnovers, no penalties, which is uh, a huge deal, which should be our standard operating procedure. But then also to continue to try to find ways to put our guys in the best spot to have success. Uh, again, I've been, I've been a part of this offense from the very beginning. I didn't just get here. So I think uh, what we've been kind of talking about and, and installing has kind of been um, one of my roles and responsibilities is now have an opportunity to um, call the players on game day, but also have more of an imprint when it comes to the day-to-day operations. Thomas, when did Frank first kind of approach you that this could be a possibility? Um, from my interview process. always mentioned at some point, wasn't exactly sure when it would happen, but I uh, had in his mind to be able to turn over to somebody at some point. And uh, I will say the previous weeks has kind of been a, a buildup of you know, kind of give me more and more opportunities throughout practice to be able to, you know, even though it's scripted, but to call it more, to have more involvement in that regard. Uh, but it's always been in his mind. It's you know, just waiting for the opportunity. So. Did you think it would be this quickly? Um, I didn't know. didn't focus on that. But that's not my job. So my job was to, to be the coordinator to help uh, do a great job from a communication standpoint of putting together a game plan, coaching the coaches, coaching the players. And I just always told them I'd be ready whenever the opportunity presented itself. How much have you learned about play calling and how much has that outlook changed since you were at Miami to, to now? Yeah, I mean, I would say it's a lot. So I was a lot younger when I was at the University of Miami. Um, obviously, the the level of play from college to NFL is different. The game is different. The width of the hashes and how you activate um, different plays, how you attack coverages, all that stuff is kind of different. But having a chance to be in L.A., be around uh, Sean McVay and learn and grow with him has been awesome for me. Uh, but also just have more of a hands-on approach being here with Frank. And one of the things I love about Frank is he is a great developer of coaches, probably one of the best I've been around when it comes to giving advice, advice, but also giving you room and freedom to be able to grow. So that's been awesome for me and my development. One of the things that Frank mentioned, and you've clearly been a part of this process from the beginning, but was the opportunity to learn and grow with Bryce. What do you see or what do you make of that opportunity? You know, I'm excited for the opportunity to continue to work with him. I mean, like I've said from day one, even in my interview, which, you know, hopefully I'm good to be able to share this, but my, one of my last stops was kind of meeting with Scott and, and Dan to kind of talk about how I saw the roster, but also my evaluation of this, this draft class of quarterbacks. And I told Bryce this yesterday when we had a kind of a sit-down meeting with us one-on-one to just talk about moving forward, my expectations, um, and what he kind of expects from me uh, in this kind of new role as a play caller. But um, I mentioned him as being the number one guy on the board then, just thinking about from the standpoint of what I saw from him on tape, and kind of just continue to grow from there. Once you had an opportunity to get on the road and meet with them and interview them and obviously watch them kind of throw from a pro day standpoint. But uh, my role from a standpoint of being a coordinator is to elevate all of our players, to put them in the best spot to be successful. It obviously includes Bryce as well. You see yourself going more um, huddle up? Because I know last week they tried to go a little more no huddle. So you see more huddle, more pre-step stuff uh, going on. I mean, just look at the little subtle changes you yeah, it'd be based on whatever helps us give a chance to win that week, week in and week out. I think being able to have tempo is going to always be a part of our offense. We'll still have some things we'll end up getting in the huddle with that can activate some motions, but I'll still maintain the standpoint of our, our core of our offense. But it'll be a mix depending on the week. Thomas, um, back in February, the day you were introduced, Frank was talking about this transition would eventually happen. He almost got emotional talking about giving that he would have to give up play calling at some point. Yeah. I'm curious, just kind of big picture – the weight of calling plays in the NFL, the, the rare opportunity to do so? 
Well, one, I'm about to find out. It'll be my, my first opportunity to do it. So I can't speak from experience in that standpoint. But um, I do think he is very intentional about what he does and what he says. And I do honor the fact that he's a man of his word. And he's been that way from day one. Like I said at the beginning, this is a, a rare opportunity and a process uh, to not have any involvement with somebody who's going to be hiring a coordinator for the first time to first get that opportunity. But on top of that, to trust him enough to handle the play calling duties to him, which is kind of just shows you what type of rare individual he is. But I think when it comes to the overall weight of um, play calling standpoint, just being able to kind of be in a passing regard. And I think most times people rarely give up uh, opportunity to call plays. It's normally forced. So I think it says a lot about him from a character standpoint, about him sticking to his word and kind of being true to who he is. How important was that to you in taking this job, that you would have that opportunity, that you knew you would have that opportunity? Yeah, it was huge. I think being able to have a chance to eventually call plays is, I think, should be every coordinator's you know, uh, dream, I, be- I would believe, I would expect from that standpoint. That's something we discussed throughout the process of my interview process. So I'm um, definitely excited about the opportunity. Thomas, will you stay on the sidelines, or would you consider sitting upstairs to do this? Be on the sidelines. Why do you prefer that? I'm a pretty energetic dude, one, um, so I like to kind of move around a little bit, but also being able to interact with the players in between drives. That's where I've kind of been for the most part. I've had a chance to be in the box before. And I think there's different perspectives of both of those, but I love the in-between drives interaction with the players. Uh, it just kind of just fits me better. You talked about learning from Frank and obviously the influence that Sean had on you. How do you kind of marry all these influences, create your own thing, and, and, and move forward with all yeah, I think one thing I've never struggled with in my life is being myself. So uh, that's never really a hard part for me. I think it's about trying to figure out how to put our guys in the best spot to be successful. I think thinking about, one, how you attack a defense is kind of first and foremost, but then also uh, who do you have to do it with from a player standpoint? Thinking more so players over plays and kind of do a really good job of putting it together as we collaborate from a staff standpoint. Thomas, a lot of coaches talk about we're in kind of the age of when players want to know the why. Yeah. Um, having played the game, having coached in college recently, having experience with all these different schemes, how important is it to be deliberate with your messaging when you do not just play call, but but plan out the offense throughout the week? I think it's a great question. I think uh, as coaches, we are teachers. And I was raised by two teachers, so I kind of understood the important part of, like you mentioned before, the why behind why you're doing a certain thing. And I think when it comes to those details we demand from our players, uh, when you give them an opportunity of the why behind a specific concept, whether it becomes normal D&D, what we call G-Bot, get back on track downs or third downs, it kind of brings a play to life and it kind of paints a picture for those guys. So there you have it. Thomas Brown speaking with the media about his new job as play calling. Thomas Brown, like, I don't know what to expect. I don't think anyone knows to expect. Is he going to be playing it close to the vest? Is he going to be conservative? Is he going to do a lot of dink, dink and dunks? Is he going to go downfield? What's going to happen with the new offensive play calling? It's still the same offense, mind you. That hasn't changed. The play calling will, and we'll see what kind of influence Thomas Brown has on it. Not this weekend because the Carolina Panthers are off, but next weekend when they're home to the Houston Texans and There's going to be a lot of pressure on the Carolina Panthers to win that game, but we'll get into that next week. All right, everyone, have a great weekend. Look forward to doing this all over again next week. I got some special guests in studio. So until then, I'm Brett Jensen, and you've been listening to Breaking with Brett Jensen.